There's good things happening here at the church, but the best thing that happens at the church is the worship of God in song and in his word. And so we're going to continue to worship now. In a very trying time in our world, we're going to look to see what God has to say in his word. So let's pray that God works in all of our hearts this morning, not through what I have to say, but through what he has to say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God of the garden. You are the God of Israel. You are God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. You are the God of the new Jerusalem to come, and you are a God that is not changing. Times change, people change. You do not change, Lord. And so, Lord, we tell you that it's no surprise that you also say that your word does not change because we recognize that it comes from you. Lord, in the midst of changing times, may you set our eyes on you, on your son Jesus Christ, and only on what is said about your son Jesus Christ in your word that is breathed out by you. May we trust in that, may we depend on that, so that it may point us to Jesus for our salvation and for our hope. We pray all this in the name of your son Jesus Christ. All God's people said, amen. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. God had just delivered his people out of slavery, passed them through the Red Sea, and now, amazingly, God decided that of all the nations of the world, he was going to specially reveal himself and create a relationship with little old Israel, a small nation that was formerly in chains. He decided in Exodus 32 that he was going to give them the law. He was going to give them the Ten Commandments, on Mount Sinai, where the burning bush was, he was going to give it to Moses and begin this new relationship with his people. And as you might remember in Exodus 32, Moses comes off the mountain to find that God's people had abandoned him. They had turned away from God. And instead, they decided to take the gold that the Egyptians had given them and turn it into a golden calf, as they put it, to go before them even though they already had God going before them. God had not changed. God had remained faithful in his promises, but the people had not been faithful in their promises. So in Exodus 32, verses 9 and 10, we see, in my opinion, one of the most amazing instances of biblical history. Because God, to Moses, says this in verse 9 of Exodus 32, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, this is what he tells Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation, talking to Moses, out of you. There's many people for the thousands of years since, even today, who would love to have been in the position of Moses in this situation. To have God abandon his people and instead make a new nation out of them. For centuries, there have been arguments about whether or not the church has replaced Israel or whether or not Israel is still the chosen people of God. And we today, as we look at the news, as we 
see the conflicts that are happening in the Middle East, as we see the violence and the hatred, we have to ask ourselves as Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, what should we think about Israel? Should we see them as good or should we see them as bad? Should we see them as a people that God has abandoned for something better or as a group that God has still remained faithful to? Like Elijah in 1 Kings 19, who felt that all of Israel had abandoned God except for himself, we too might feel at times discouraged by what we see on the news. So all of that leads us to what Paul had to say in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, when Paul asked the question, has God abandoned Israel? We have to answer that question this morning. And the only way to answer that question is by looking to see what God has to say about his people in his word. So for the next 30 minutes from Genesis to Revelation, we are going to look at the story of God's people. And hopefully by walking away, we can better understand not just how we should understand Israel, but how we should understand God. So turn first with me to Genesis chapter 12. As you're turning to Genesis chapter 12, remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death came, and there was nothing that could fix that problem of sin in the world that was natural. God even brought a worldwide flood to physically remove sinful people off of the planet. And just a few minutes later, after getting off the ark, Noah succumbs again to the fruit by getting drunk and sinning against the Lord. This sin that had entered into the garden in Genesis 3, not even a flood could fix, because in Genesis chapter 3, as God is giving the punishments to Adam and Eve of of the pain of labor and uh, the thorns and the thistles of the ground that they are going to have to deal with as a result of their sin, God also, in Genesis 3.16, gives a promise of the gospel. He says that someday, Eve, you're going to have an offspring. You're going to have a descendant. You're going to have a son. And he's going to crush the head of this serpent. No flood's going to be able to fix the sin. No amount of uh, building a tower up to heaven or no physical natural means is going to be able to fix a problem of sin. Only this offspring, only this son that is going to be born of a descendant of Eve. And that's what brings us to Genesis chapter 12, because in the verses leading up to Genesis chapter 12, we see a timeline of genealogies, people born after one person, born after another person, all the way from Noah to a man named Abraham, where God is going to begin not just the story of his people, the Israelites, but he's going to begin something known as the redemptive narrative. In the Bible, you should recognize that there is something called the redemptive narrative. The redemptive narrative is the story of how God fixes the problem of the garden. It's the story of salvation. Not every verse in every book of the Bible is directly related to Jesus and the gospel, but a crimson thread from Genesis to Revelation weaves itself through all the books of the Bible that hang on this one redemptive narrative where bit by bit, progressively, God from Genesis to Revelation is revealing how he is going to fix a broken world. 
And the stage of that redemptive narrative we're going to find is Israel. And the way that God chooses to progressively reveal that redemptive narrative or that plan of salvation is going to be first through Abraham, and it's going to be through something called a covenant. A covenant is going to be the bedrock, different covenants throughout Scripture that God is going to give to the nation of Israel is going to be the bedrock of this redemptive narrative, this plan of salvation. When you think of a covenant, you can write this down, you can think of a contract that creates relationship. Just like a marriage is a covenant, it's a contract of vows that results in a relationship, God to different people at different times is going to build upon his covenants with different people. And in doing so, he is going to reveal the plan of salvation, how it all culminates into the gospel. And the first covenant, the first contract that God gives to begin this redemptive narrative to fix a broken world is not going to be through a flood. It's not going to be through building a tower to heaven, but it's going to be given to a person that God chooses to have a relationship with. Read with me Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says that now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The first contract of relationship that God establishes with his nation was with no nation at all. It was actually with one man who couldn't even have children. That's the kind of God that we serve. That he made a nation out of one old single man with a wife who could not even have children. And he promised three things. When you think of the Abrahamic covenant, God begins his relationship with a person that he's going to turn into a nation. When you think Abrahamic covenant, always think of these three things. And you see it in these three verses. God promises land. God promises descendants. And God promises blessing. Land, descendants, blessing. All three of these promises literally came true in Scripture. Abraham understood this promise as a literal promise. And biblical history shows us that they were fulfilled literally. We know about the descendants. We know about the many ways that God blessed his people. Joseph has a great story about how God blessed his people through a person like Joseph. And God even brought his people to the promised land. But we recognize that even today, the promised land that God promised to his people, they haven't received all of it completely yet. Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, we see boundaries given, southward, eastward, westward, showing specifically where the land would end. Numbers chapter 34, verses 4 and 5, give even more specific boundaries which even though these boundaries may not mean much to us today, I have to let you know that the boundaries that you see up here are not the same boundaries that you see on a political map on Fox News today. The descendants of Abraham 
have never completely received all of the land that was promised in Genesis chapter 12. They literally received it. They literally received blessing. They literally received ascendance. They have not yet received all of the land. That is the first covenant that God gives to his people, and it's the way that he establishes his relationship with the Israelites through one single man that he gives land, descendants, blessing. None of those promises have been revoked. None of those have been taken away or reversed. They all remain in place, which is good because of the end of verse 3, it says that in you, referring to in Abraham's genetic future, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Paul quotes Genesis 22, verse 18, where he says, in your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we know who that is. So it's good that this is a literal promise because we're going to find later that Jesus literally fulfills it. But let's now go to the second covenant. The second covenant doesn't replace the first covenant. The second covenant always builds on to the first covenant. That's very important. It never does away with the previous. It always progressively adds to. God is giving the next chapter, so to speak, of his redemptive narrative. And he's giving it to his people, the Israelites, that began as one old man but has now multiplied into a million people. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. We'll keep this slide up for now. Exodus chapter 19 is the famous section where we see the Mosaic law given. They've been delivered out of Egypt. God's about to give them the Ten Commandments. And God gives a covenant. He gives a promise. He gives a contract that is creating a new kind of relationship, even different, even better than the kind of relationship that God had with Abraham. Because remember, when Moses went to see God at the burning bush, God gave Moses his personal name. God didn't give Abraham that, but God gave that to Moses, showing that God is expanding. He is progressing his redemptive narrative. He is revealing himself in greater ways to his people, and he's about to do that in this Mosaic covenant, which for lack of a better term, when you think of the Mosaic covenant, think of the law. Think of the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch is what we call it. Think of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. That is the Mosaic Covenant that is all capped by this statement that God gives through Moses to the Israelites in verse 5. God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. We call this the Mosaic Covenant, but really it's the Israeli Covenant is a better way of thinking about it. Because this isn't a contract of relationship that God is giving with Moses. Moses is really just the mediator of the contract of relationship that God is giving to the Israelites and we see that in this covenant, there are two promises. There is redemption, or deliverance would be another way of thinking of it. God has given them deliverance, freedom out of their bondage. God will deliver them from their enemies. 
if they keep his covenant, which we find later in books like Daniel isn't always the case. But even more than that, here's the special part. The special part is that the Mosaic Covenant, which we always think of laws and rules and legalism, no, the Mosaic Covenant, it's one of intimacy. It's where God says, guess what? I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. You're going to be my treasured possession. We're going to have a special relationship where even Moses, he was able to see God, the Bible tells us, like one sees a friend. That's the kind of treasured, special relationship that God gave to his people through the Mosaic Covenant. And it's one that was received literally. Moses literally walked with God. Moses literally saw God in the tent of meeting. God literally and physically fulfilled this covenant to his people by delivering them from their enemies when they were faithful and sending them into exile when they were not. This is a literal covenant. And it's also a conditional one because they don't get the blessing of God being their God if they have no interest in faithfully obeying God in his law. We, some, we see some verses that illustrate this. Let's look at actually Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. God says this, If you faithfully obey, not just if you dutifully obey or legalistically obey, if you faithfully obey, it was always a matter of faith, the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations and of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. You cannot have God be your God if you have no desire to follow him. You cannot have God be your God if you have no desire to worship him in the laws and in the words that he has set before you. That is the Mosaic Covenant. Leviticus 26 would be another example of this. God says that you will be my people. I will make my dwelling among you. I have these written in your notes as well if you want to look back on these. And look also at Deuteronomy 26, where God uses that special phrase of his treasured possession. The Mosaic Covenant is one of relationship. God doesn't just choose to be a God over his people. He wants to have a loving relationship with his people, one where they are treasured. Let's now go to the next covenant. We call this the Davidic Covenant. You can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And remember, again, that this covenant does not replace the previous ones. This covenant is the next episode of the redemptive narrative on which Israel is the stage that that narrative takes place. We've looked at this one before. It's so important. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is talking to David. David, who, by the way, is a son of Abraham. And David wants to build God a house. He wants to build God a, a temple since uh, David himself has his own palace to live in. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, God is going to say, no, 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 no. You're not going to build me a house, referring to a physical palace. God says, I'm going to build you a house, referring to a dynastic house, a royal house. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13 say this. When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to David, 
and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. That same word offspring that was promised to Abraham, that was promised to Eve, God is now expanding that promise. He's pulling back the curtain a little bit more and revealing a little bit more about who that offspring is going to be. And God reveals that this offspring is going to be a king who shall come from your body and Abraham's body. And God says, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Have you ever seen the sandlot? Forever. Forever. David received this promise literally. Later in the Old Testament, this is called a covenant. God is making a special relationship with Israel through David, saying that this offspring promised to Abraham and promised to Eve is going to be a king. This isn't new, and this isn't replacing the Abrahamic covenant, because the Abrahamic covenant actually also alluded to a king. Genesis chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. God promises Abraham that from you, kings shall come. God wasn't changing his mind. He wasn't changing plan. He wasn't shifting course. He was progressively revealing his redemptive narrative that was there from the beginning, starting in Genesis chapter 3 and even before the foundations of the world. What kind of king is this going to be? Is this just the king of our hearts? Is this just the, 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 the king of, of our mind? The king referring to the church? That's not how the Bible understood it. That's not how the prophets of the Old Testament understood the kind of king that was going to be promised. Look at Isaiah. Isaiah is considered the greatest prophet in the Bible. By many, even secularists consider the book of Isaiah the strongest prophetic book. Isaiah chapter 9 says this, For unto us an offspring or a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Not just the church, not just your heart, the government. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is more than just an earthly son. Of the increase of his government. The Bible doesn't talk about government in referring to the church and God very much, but it talks about government here. And of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We don't have time for it, but write down Isaiah chapter 11. It's one of the most vivid pictures of the reign of David's offspring. And you'll find that the way that Isaiah 11 is described, it's the famous chapter where the wolf lies down with the lamb, where the little boys are playing with the vipers, the reign of this king is described in such a way that it can't be heaven and it can't be the church age. It has to be on this earth and it has to be a time of peace. It's referring to something else. Isaiah chapter 11. God is progressively revealing his plan to his special people, the Israelites. But as you know, with every covenant, even though God revealed more of his grace and more of his mercy, just like in Exodus 32, the people were unfaithful. It didn't matter how many times God gave the law. The law didn't fix sin. The law really just exposed sin. And so God gave to Israel in the Old Testament one more covenant. This time, God revealed that he wasn't just going to give them a law that is going to be written on stone tablets, 
but that something deeper has to take place. There has to be a change of the heart. Therefore, God gives the new covenant. And turn with me then to Jeremiah chapter 31. As you're turning there, I just want to briefly remind you, let's look at the Davidic covenant on this slide real quick. It's a promise of both a king and a kingdom. You can't forget that. Not just the king of David, but also his kingdom that comes with it. And this covenant is unconditional. Whether you believe it or not, whether you accept it or not, whether it fits into your theology or not, the king is coming. It's unconditional. Let's go to the next one, the new covenant. Again, does not replace the old covenant. That is a very uh, commonly misunderstood concept of the new covenant that it has replaced the previous ones. It hasn't replaced the previous ones. It has added on to it. It has progressed the redemptive narrative naturally over the course of time. We see in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, God gives a new covenant to the Israelites in the Old Testament where he says, Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new contract or covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. By the way, this is the same new covenant that Jesus refers to at the Last Supper during communion. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Does that sound familiar? This is just a continuation of the Israelite covenant or the Mosaic covenant. This isn't getting rid of it. This is God saying that he is expanding upon it in the fullness of time, in his perfect timing. He's not just giving them the law. He says that he's going to put it in their hearts. Ezekiel chapter 36 expands on this. Verses 26 through 28, where God talks about making them a new person, sprinkling them clean with water and with the Spirit. And that even when God gives the new covenant, he still refers to the land. He still refers to them being his people. The new covenant is a covenant of a changed heart. And it's one that we're going to find is both conditional and unconditional. This may sound familiar to you, being sprinkled clean with water and of the Spirit. You may wonder, where have I heard that before? Well, you've heard it in one of the most famous chapters in the Bible when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus wanted to know, how do I enter the kingdom? He didn't ask, how do I get saved? Nicodemus was thinking of the Davidic covenant. He says, how do I enter the kingdom? In his mind, that was the same thing. And Jesus in John chapter 3 verse 5 says that he needs the new covenant. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he's quoting the new covenant in Ezekiel, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, the Israelites thought that just because they were born of Abraham, that they would receive the kingdom of David's son by default. And Jesus says, no, just being born of Abraham isn't enough. You have to be born again. That's what that term being born again is really referring to. Not just the idea of new life, although it does involve new life, but the idea of you need a new heritage. 
in order to receive the promised king. And that new heritage is only by faith in receiving the new covenant that God is giving. Zechariah in the New Testament, he understood Jesus in this way. When Jesus was born in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah sings a song of praise to not just the newborn baby, but to the king. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Zechariah understood that when Jesus was born, he was coming to fulfill the covenants of the Old Testament. The son of Abraham, the one to redeem his people, that God has remembered his holy covenant. The New Testament understood Jesus as the culmination of God's redemptive narrative, the coming together of the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenant, all meeting in the person of Jesus. This is why when Pastor Jim went through the Gospel of Matthew, he referred to it as the Gospel of the King. See, Pastor Meredith remembers. We'll have to call up Pastor Jim and let him know that. Uh, Good job. It's the gospel of the king because when Jesus came to preach salvation, he preached it in context of the Davidic covenant that he gave to the Israelites. The gospel was in context of God's promises to his people. He hadn't abandoned his people. Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4, we see examples of this. Again and again, Jesus refers to salvation in reference to the kingdom of David. And in fact, even Jesus says that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament understood that someday the Messiah would be the fulfillment of these promises. We see in John chapter 8 and in Matthew chapter 3 or 13, we see these examples where Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day, where the prophets and righteous people, they longed to see what the people who saw Jesus saw. The Old Testament understood that God's covenants were going to be literally fulfilled, and they saw Jesus as literally fulfilling that, and in no way abandoning Israel through the process. Jesus was understood as the Israeli Messiah. So let's start bringing this all together. When Jesus came, the apostles thought, well, here he is. Abraham longed for this day. The people longed for the son of David, the son of Abraham, this king who is going to give us peace. Here he is. They thought that it was going to happen now. Luke chapter 19 shows us this, as well as Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Jesus, after he was resurrected, the disciples asked him, Lord, is it now time for the Davidic covenant to be fulfilled? Is this what you were talking about in Genesis 17 to Abraham when you said that kings will come and that there will be peace? Is now the time for Isaiah chapter 11 and Isaiah chapter 9? Is this it? And you want to know how Jesus responds? He responds by giving them the Great Commission. To to Jewish people, by the way, to Israelites. He says, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Sumeria and to the ends of the earth. God wanted the Israelites, the Jewish people, the apostles to proclaim his kingdom because his kingdom was not of this world. They couldn't make the kingdom of Isaiah 11 on this world even though it will be on this world. It has to come down from heaven and be brought to this world. There's many more things we could say about when this would culminate. I'll just say this briefly. 
That Psalm 110 talks about Jesus not being on the Davidic throne right now, but being at the right hand of the Father. He's waiting to come back to sit on the throne of David, promised in the Old Testament. It says that that's not going to happen until all the enemies are defeated or made a footstool under him. And then it says in 2 Corinthians 15 that finally the last enemy to be destroyed is death, that after Jesus reigns, he'll have to continue to reign until even death is destroyed. This is interesting because this bookends the culmination of all these promises finally being fulfilled in Revelation chapter 20 in something known as the Millennial Kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth that just like all the other covenants, is a given literally, and it was understood literally by the early church. And if you were to look at Revelation briefly, you would find that before the millennium starts in Revelation 19, and after the millennium is over in Revelation 20, you find that before the millennium starts, Jesus comes in Revelation 19, verse 15. Jesus comes, and what does he do? He makes all his enemies his footstool, and then he reigns for the thousand years. After the thousand years are over, what does he do? He destroys death. He throws death into Hades because he has to reign until that happens at the end of that 1,000 years and transition then to the new heaven and the new earth. When you think of Revelation 20, that millennial kingdom, just like all other promises in the Bible, it was given literally and it was received literally. Therefore, we should understand it literally as well. If you choose to assume that the millennial kingdom is just symbolic of the church or uh, just poetic or representative of something else, it forces you to recalibrate the way you understand everything else in the Bible. It forces you to recalibrate how you understand God's promise to David. It forces you to change how you understand God's promise to Abraham. It then forces you to change how you understand the book of Galatians because, God because Paul presented the gospel based on a literal understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. And if we make one thing symbolic, then we have to make that symbolic. And if we make that symbolic, then we have to make the gospel symbolic. And if the gospel is symbolic, I don't want to be here. I don't want to spend my Sunday proclaiming a truth that is not a real truth. I'm here because I believe in the real God of the Bible who really fulfills his promises. Do you? That's what we're here for this morning, and that's what we're going to be here every Sunday for. So in conclusion, the question is, is who is going to benefit from all of this? How should we understand Israel? Is Israel really going to enjoy this millennial kingdom? Is Israel, despite all their sin, despite rejecting Jesus as Messiah, are they really still God's people? Well, know this, that there is such a thing as a geographic Israel, there is such a thing as an ethnic Israel, and there is such a thing as a spiritual Israel. There is the land of Israel that literally exists on the map. There are ethnic genealogical descendants of Abraham who literally exist today. We see them here in America and even on the news abroad. But we must also know that only the ones who will truly enjoy God as their God, the only one who will truly eternally enjoy the king of David forever and forever are not just those who are physical descendants of Abraham, but those who are also spiritual descendants of Abraham. This is what the Bible has to say about that. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, John the Baptist says, 
Don't presume for yourself that we have Abraham as our father. God is able even from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Just being a physical descendant doesn't mean that you're going to enjoy all these promises. You'll enjoy some, but not all of them. You'll enjoy them temporarily, but not eternally. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And that isn't referring to the church. That's referring to all those who are of faith in the remnant of Israel and the church included in that. Because remember, since the time Jesus ascended, there has always been a remnant of faithful, believing Jewish people, even to this day, who understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenants given to their nation. Romans chapter 9, verses 7 and 8 says that not all are children of Abraham in the spiritual sense. They're not children of Abraham just because they're technically their offspring. But through Isaac, through the offspring, through the birth of Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, is what Paul says in Galatians 4.4. 4. Those are the true children of Abraham who will enjoy the fullness of the land in Israel someday, who will enjoy the eternal reign of King Jesus, and who will enjoy the blessings of having God be their God and being his people Romans chapter 11 describes this as us being grafted in. Those Gentiles who are of faith, we don't replace the Israelites. We get grafted into the Israelites. We get to enjoy the blessings that God first promised to them, which is why when Paul and Peter, they go to all the cities to write the letters of the New Testament and preach the gospel, where do they go first? The Jewish synagogue. Because we get lumped in, we get added in, to the Israelites that God has given this promise to. All of this, I'm wrapping up, brings us to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, where we see the future of heaven. And how is it described? As the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And look at how God quotes the covenants in this passage. He says, the dwelling place of God is now with man. God once walked with him in the tree of life in the garden. He's now doing it again, just as he promised to Moses. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. That gets to be us too. We get to be the sons of Abraham by faith. He who is seated on the throne, referring to the Davidic covenant, says, behold, I am making all things, like the new covenant says, new. The story of God is the story of Israel. The redemptive narrative of the gospel takes place on the stage of the Israelites. So when we get to the question, has God abandoned his people from Paul in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, the answer is no. Even though in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, which we have a slide for, Romans 11, 1 and 2, even though they have rejected God, God has not rejected them. God is faithful. And Israel is proof of that. That we worship a faithful God who keeps his promises even to a thousand generations. My last word will be in Exodus chapter 32 again. Turn there. Moses was given an incredible opportunity God offered Moses to abandon his people, forget his covenants, change plan, change course, 
replace the Abrahamic covenant with a new nation, discard the Israelites for a new people, and look at how Moses responds in Exodus 32, looking in verse 11. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And look at this in verse 13. Moses tells God this. He says, God, remember Abraham. Remember Isaac. Remember Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses looks to God. He had everything available to him. And God says, no, God, remember your promises. Remember your promises, God. Remember Abraham. Don't go back on your promises. You're a holy God. You're a faithful God. Remember Abraham. In Graham Emanuel Baptist Church, that's exactly what we need to do this morning. We need to look to a world that is asking questions, and we need to say, remember the God who keeps his promises to Abraham. Remember what God promised to the Israelites, how he kept them, how he preserved them, and how he gave them a Messiah. And trust in that Messiah. Because I don't know what impact these events will have on the Bible. In fact, actually, I do know. It will have no impact. Because nothing impacts the Bible. But the Bible impacts everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of Graham Emanuel Baptist Church. Be faithful, Lord. We know you will be. You don't need our permission. But Lord, we look to you, we call on you in the midst of violence that happens in the, in the Middle East, in the midst of violence that happens here, even in the United States. We pray that you will come quickly, that your son of David, that Jesus Christ, that he will return to establish his kingdom first here on earth, and then someday in the new heaven and earth that he will bring. We look forward to it, Lord, and give us faithfulness to proclaim that coming kingdom, to remember the covenants and to walk by faith in the culmination of those covenants, your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of the Son of Jesus, who is the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the Son of God. Amen. Love you guys. Go in peace.